If you have your Bible, Acts chapter 8, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 25, the first half of Acts, and we're going to pray before we dive into our teaching. So would you pray with me now? Father, uh, you created all things and you created them good. You created us even to glorify, to enjoy you forever. You created us in knowledge and righteousness and holiness to have a living and true relationship with you, to know your truth and follow your ways. But Father, we confess that because of sin, we've suppressed your truth. Because of sin, we've believed lies and oftentimes we just want to follow our own ways. We even follow the evil one in our sin and we even follow the broken patterns of this world. So this morning, Father, would you send out your light and your truth? Let them lead us this morning. Let your light and your truth bring us to your holy hill, to your dwelling. Would your light and your truth bring us into your presence, into your exceeding joy? Would you give us your spirit, the spirit of your son, Jesus Christ, to hear, to understand, to apply your truth? By the spirit of Christ, would you speak to us individually and show us the ways we all need to repent and turn back to you? Show us the ways we need to change. Show us the ways we can better glorify and enjoy you for who you are rather than for what you can do for us. We ask all of this, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of your Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. So some of you know this about me. I drive my kids into school uh, throughout the week. And one of the things that we do is we listen to Cozy 101. And we just have it on in the background because they do this trivia game as we're driving into school. Well, on Halloween, they weren't doing the trivia game. Instead, the host of the show had on a psychic. They were doing like psychic readings over the phone. And as I dropped my kids off, you know, I turned it off once I heard that, but then I dropped my kids off. And then as I'm driving back into work, I turn it up and I start listening in. Well, a man named Quincy called in and Quincy said, I want you to connect with my brother who's passed on from this world. And the psychic gets on and says, oh, I see your brother and your brother wants you to focus more on your family. He also says that you're going to be receiving a surprising decision at work in a few weeks, but be sure not to let your work commitments overshadow your family commitments. It's a critical time in your kid's life. And if you allow that to happen, then there's a chance you could regret it later on in your life. And the co-host of this is saying, oh my goodness, you have a gift of God. How do you have this gift? This is great. This is amazing. Me, on the other hand, I'm thinking, this is baloney. <laughs> right? This is, these are just lies. I think of the guilt. Think of the guilt that that person would feel, Quincy, if Heaven forbid, one of their kids goes astray and makes wrong decisions. Think of the guilt that that person, Quincy, would feel if they looked at their kid going astray. They would be thinking, if I only would have listened to the psychic in 2023, that person would be utterly crushed. And I'm just thinking to myself, what a mockery, what a sham, what a fake, counterfeit spirituality. These are pure, unfiltered lies. And you know how I know that that's the case? It's because I was Quincy. I was the one who called in to Cozy 101 and said my name was Quincy and said I had a brother, both of whom are alive, by the way. Did I lie to expose a lie? Yes. 
Was it a lie for the greater good? I think so. I do think so. I, I say that for a point. There is a point. And it's to highlight this. There has never been a time, nor will there ever be a time, where there is a shortage or a deficit of counterfeit spirituality, of counterfeit faith. Let me say that again. There never has been, nor will there ever be, a shortage of counterfeit spirituality. We've been working through the book of Acts. We saw this last week and we've seen this recurring motif in the book of Acts. Whereas the kingdom of God expands, so too does opposition and persecution. And as we saw last week, the kingdom of God, as it expands the gospel, the message of Jesus continues to spread to new people. It led to the first Christian martyrdom. There was a man named Stephen. He was a deacon, a follower of Jesus, devout in his faith. He was stoned to death by religious leaders in Jerusalem, by the religious authorities of his day. And today in Acts chapter 8, as we kind of turn the page after this first martyrdom, we're going to see an additional motif develop, that as the kingdom of God expands, so too does counterfeit spirituality, counterfeit faith. In the first half of Acts 8, we see that this counterfeit spirituality is actually given a name. It's called simony. We're going to return to that here shortly. But before that, take a look at Acts chapter 8, verse 1. We see and read that one of the main antagonists of the stoning of Stephen, one of the main antagonists was a man named Saul, verse 1. And not only did this Saul approve of Stephen's execution, as we see here, but that execution led to escalating persecution. And according to verse 3, Saul was the spearhead of that persecution throughout Jerusalem. We read that Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house as he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison for their newfound faith in Jesus. And as a result of this escalating persecution, it says, verse 1, all the church was scattered from Jerusalem throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, that is, everyone except the apostles. All of them are scattered. It's like dominoes toppling one after the other after the other. other. Martyrdom leads to persecution, which leads to scattering. And I love this. Look at what happens in verse 4. This chain of events leads to a further expansion, a further spread of the kingdom of God. Luke says in verse 4, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And then Luke, he highlights this man named Philip who, who was a deacon with Stephen. He was ordained with Stephen. He was a leader in the church in Jerusalem. And we're told, verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Stephen's execution, Saul's antagonism, rising persecution. You see what happens. They all have the opposite effect of what was intended. You see that? They all have this opposite effect. Instead of intimidating Christians, 
Instead of smothering the message of Jesus, instead of suppressing the kingdom of God, persecution succeeded only in spreading the kingdom further. Isn't that amazing? Now beyond the limits of Jerusalem and into the regions of Judea and Samaria, as those who are scattered, fearful for their lives, go about like Philip, preaching the word, sharing the message of Jesus in town after town, one after the other, and crowds of people can't help but pay attention. You saw that in verse 6, right? They're fascinated with this message because for the first time in their life, they're told by Philip, Jesus took your sins and died for them. Realize how radical of a message that is? That is. Counterfeit spirituality always says, do enough for God and then he'll do something for you. He'll maybe forgive you. He'll maybe give you eternal life. Not this message. No, it's the free grace and forgiveness of Jesus who took your sins and died for them. That God so loved the world, he sent his son to die for you so that you will not perish but have eternal life in his kingdom. And all this highlights this this. This one reality, the the reality is this, that nothing can smother the kingdom of God. Absolutely nothing. Remember what Jesus said to his church at the very beginning of Acts. You, You might not remember this, but Jesus left his church, his apostles, with marching orders. Before he ascended into heaven, another one of the miracles he performed, he told his apostles, my work is going to continue through you. And listen to what he said. He said, you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Nothing can smother the kingdom of God, Saul's threats, Saul's arrests, widespread persecution. All these things succeeded in doing was to spread the kingdom of God beyond the boundaries of Jerusalem. All they succeeded in doing was to advance the plan Jesus already had for his church in the first place. To go into Judea, to go into Samaria, beyond Jerusalem, until it reached the end of the earth. It had the opposite effect of what was intended. You you think, that's also true of Jesus' persecution, Jesus' execution, Jesus' martyrdom, which happened just months before Stephen's martyrdom and persecution. Think about it. During his final week of life, Jesus, if you think of the chain of events, Jesus was betrayed by Judas. He was arrested by religious leaders. He was flogged as an innocent man. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. And all that this did was have the opposite of the intended effect that it was implemented for. All Satan succeeded in doing was to advance the grace and plan that Jesus had in the first place. Do you see that? His plan to be crucified by the religious leaders only affirmed the plan that Jesus had to be crucified for the sins of the world. The plan to execute Jesus only confirmed Jesus' plan to bring sinners out of Satan's kingdom and into the kingdom of God. Jesus' plan was to offer himself and change sinners more into the likeness of himself because nothing can smother his kingdom, nothing can smother his plan. No threat, no scheme of Satan can ever defeat the kingdom of God. Amen? You might find this statistic uh, interesting. 
there's uh, two writers. One's name is Michael Graham. The other is Jim Davis. And they did a book that was published just this year, Studying Trends in Church Attendance and Participation. Uh, spoiler alert, it's not good. From the years 1990 to the years 2020, 30 years, they found that 40 million, 40 million people over that span of 30 years just stopped attending church on a regular basis. They just stopped going. Walking away from the church, walking away from Jesus and the kingdom of God. And do you realize that that is the largest religious shift, the largest religious decline in our nation's history in the last 30 years that you've experienced? Anybody else depressed? <laughs> Experts speculate as to why this decrease has happened. They cite a number of things. There's individualism. You can't tell me what to do. There's community breakdown. There's lack of gospel preaching churches. We have church buildings, but we don't have many church buildings that preach the gospel as regularly as before. There's secularism, this idea that there's no God beyond this world. There's our vast wealth, which has been shown to actually negatively influence and affect our faith. This is similar in the UK. We, we plant churches. It's one of the things that we do as a church here. And we found out that Many of the churches in the UK, many of our church plant partners, they meet in schools. Well, there's this trend that as these churches get established, all of a sudden administrators from the schools are showing up on Sunday mornings. And what they're finding is that these administrators are listening in to see and to hear whether or not the message from the pulpit is starting to go against the cultural's view on human sexuality and marriage. And if it does, well, there goes your right to meet in the school. All of these forces abroad in the UK, here, throughout the world, it can be argued they can have contributed to this shift, this decline. All of these forces press in and seek to strangle, to stifle the message of Jesus. But here's the reality. We see it in Acts chapter 8. All that these things do is to confirm the plan that Jesus has already had because nothing can stifle the kingdom of God. None of these forces can succeed because nothing can smother Jesus. Just as the gospel spread from Jerusalem into Judea, into Samaria, even under persecution, nothing will stop Jesus' plan for his kingdom. It must advance into the very ends of the earth. That's what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. No matter how the dominoes fall, no matter the chain of events, they all lead to that end, the victory of Jesus and his kingdom. And you see in verse 9, remember we said this motif develops, right? As the kingdom expands, not only does persecution expand, but also you see counterfeit spirituality also rise to the surface. And in this instance, it's found in a man named Simon. Look again at verse 9. Verse 9 reads, but there was a man named Simon. Just Note this, that's never good. When something good is happening in the Bible and then all of a sudden it says, but there was so-and-so, you don't want to be so-and-so. And in the next line, it tells us, Luke describes Simon as a man who, quote, 
previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. You think of magic today, you kind of think of like a hackneyed, you know, cringy, contrived musician who comes to your kid's 11th birthday party. You know what I'm talking about? I'm the great Simon. (laughs) You know, come up, pick a card, any card. Oh, look at this pigeon, you know. That's, That's not what's going on here. No, this man actually had some gravitas among the people. It says he amazed the people of Samaria. Look at verse 10. It says, they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. This guy has the power of God. He performs wonders and magic. He has the power of God, or as they put it, this man is the power of God that is called great. Simon was portrayed as someone equal with God. Many early Christian writers, they actually speak about Simon well after this account. He's actually well attested to in in early Christian history. One man, his name's Justin Martyr. He was born in 1000, or sorry, 100 A.D., And he was a native of Samaria, the same area where Simon was from. And he wrote, quote, Simon the Samaritan did mighty deeds of magic so that he was considered by locals as a god and was worshipped not only by almost all the Samaritans, but even by some in Rome who erected a statue in his honor. Another man, his name was Irenaeus. Irenaeus lived around the same time of Justin Martyr. He was just slightly younger than Justin Martyr. He wrote, Simon was glorified by man as if he were a god and was the author of all sorts of heresies. This one's my favorite, though. This comes from a man named Hippolytus. He was writing at the end of the second century, so just around the 190s. And he recounts that late in his life, Simon was in a dispute with another Christian. And they were arguing over the resurrection of Jesus. And so Simon said, oh, Jesus is resurrected? I can do that. I can absolutely do that. So what Hippolytus writes is that uh, Simon said, quote, if I were buried alive right now, I'll rise again on the third day. Then he commanded a grave to be dug and he ordered his disciples to heap earth upon him. They did as he commanded and he remains in that grave to this day. And Hippolytus writes, because he was not the Christ. (laughs) Turns out he was not exactly the power of God that is called great. But just a man, a man trafficking in counterfeit spirituality, counterfeit power, counterfeit greatness. The Samaritans realize this. No sooner than Philip arrives, we're going to see this, no sooner than Philip arrives and they hear the true power of God the true power of God's spirit on display, the true power of the gospel message, does their attention go from Simon to Jesus through Philip? That's why in verse 12, we read, but when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women, before they were amazed by a counterfeit, you see. Now they see the genuine article. 
you have a counterfeit dollar bill and you hold a real dollar bill in your other hand, you know which one is fake. And that's exactly what they realize here. Even Simon realizes that Philip is legit and that God is actually working his great power through him. It says, verse 13, even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Wow! Here I am, I, I say I have great power, but there's Philip, real signs, real miracles, real power in his gospel message. Paralyzed and lame people are completely healed. Walking again, I can't do that, let's be honest. Unclean spirits are shrieking at the name of Jesus. My great power can't hold a candle to the real great power of Jesus through Philip. Simon knows what's going on. He knows deep in the recesses of his heart, his great power is magic. It's fake. You can still find people that claim, I have the great power of God. They exist today. I can miraculously heal and perform great wonders and signs that you've never seen before. I have the power of God to heal. People still say this today. I actually know of a, a faith healing service that happened actually in the Colorado area. It was a, just a couple years ago where this man said, I have this gift. I can heal. I have the power of God at my fingertips. He asked volunteers to come up during a healing service. One lady came up and said, I have agonizing back pain. And he said, rate your back pain, zero to 10. She said, it's an eight. It's in, I'm, I'm in agony. I can't sleep. I can barely eat. I can't even walk. So this man prays over her, he does his healing thing, and then he says, now what's your back pain? And she said, a level four? Let's compare. <laughs> Philip is healing person after person, paralytic after paralytic. He's healing men and women who were lame, casting out demons, and now we have cutting sciatic nerve pain in half. <laughs> One of these things isn't like the other. Peter is healing people by his shadow. Later on, Paul is healing people by a Kleenex. And here we have lumbar relief. One of these things is not like the other. And don't hear what I'm not saying. I am not saying God cannot miraculously heal. We serve a God of miraculous great power in the name of Jesus. He absolutely can heal, and he absolutely does. After this service, we're going to be praying for a dear woman who's been diagnosed with stage three breast cancer. We pray to God that he will miraculously heal her. But when someone today starts saying, we have the extraordinary gift of healing power, and we compare that with the genuine article, we do realize, hey, something might not add up here. And the Samaritan, Simon, they see Philip and they know Philip has real, genuine, great power from Jesus. Simon has magic. It's a counterfeit. That makes sense of verse 13. Look at that verse again. It said, you know, after Simon believed and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. That word continued, it's the Greek word proskartero. It means to aggressively, steadfastly persist in following. It means to hound someone. 
okay? Think of a three or four-year-old daughter with their mom. Mom goes to the backyard, the daughter's there. Mom goes to the garage, the daughter's there. Mom sits down to read, she's right there crawling over mom. Mom goes to the bathroom and shuts the door and locks the door for just one second to herself. And there she is again at the door, clawing, knocking, looking under the quarter-inch space between the carpet and screaming, let me in! Just my house? (laughs) That's Simon with Philip. Hounding him everywhere he goes, constantly at his shoulder, watching his miracles and healings because he knows this man has something I I don't and I want that same thing. They all know. They've seen the counterfeit, but here's Jesus through Philip, the genuine article, and they all know that Jesus is the power of God that is called great. And in verse 14, it becomes obvious becomes obvious, not only did Simon traffic and counterfeit spirituality, but the belief in Jesus that it said he had was equally counterfeit. It was nothing more than a counterfeit faith. Look at verse 14. We read, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, just pause here for a moment because this is a helpful distinction here. Ordinarily, when a person believes in Jesus, it's a single experience. A person receives God's Spirit, they believe, they're baptized, they receive forgiveness, and then they grow in their life more and more in conformity to Jesus. Ordinarily and in Acts, that's the experience. That's our experience today. But extraordinarily, you see this in Acts and in the early church, as the church is being established, what we see that is that as the gospel and the kingdom expand into new areas, into new places to reach new people, some people received extraordinary gifts of the Spirit as a confirmation that the kingdom of God was truly present. You saw it at Pentecost, right? At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came on the apostles and they started being gifted with these miraculous, extraordinary gifts like speaking in other languages and prophecy. These gifts occurred for some people in the early church when the gospel spread to new areas. And that's what's happening here. That's what Luke is describing. As is ordinarily the case, these Samaritans are given God's spirit. They believe they're baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, just as we experience today. Then, extraordinarily, as a confirmation of the kingdom and its spread into the new areas, the apostles come to Samaria and they see these Samaritans receive the extraordinary gifts that they themselves received at Pentecost. But then back to Simon... Simon sees the apostles coming down, laying their hands on these Samaritans, and he thinks, oh, okay. Philip had this extraordinary power. I see that. But these apostles, they laid their hands on these people, and some of them are now speaking in different languages and prophesying. These must be the ones I need to follow. They're the givers of the gifts. See, Simon still has magical thinking at play here. I can can be like these apostles and do these great powers. I can be someone great again. So Simon approaches Peter and John, verse 18, 
And it says, Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And right away, Peter realizes this man doesn't have genuine faith in Jesus. This is where we get the term simony, where it comes from, from this man, Simon. Simony means seeking to buy the things of God, to traffic and make God a commercial entity instead of receiving Jesus and the Spirit as a free gift of grace. Instead of following Jesus and humbly growing in that grace day by day, Simon wants to be an apostle. He wants to be a leader. He wants to be great. And he's willing to drain his life savings in order to get it. But Simony goes deeper than that. It also means believing in Jesus for your own selfish gain. Not only buying the things of God, but believing in Jesus so you yourself can advance. You can see pretty clearly that's why Simon wanted to follow Jesus. He believed in Jesus for the first, in the first place so that he could advance himself. Simon was considered great. He was godlike. People worshipped him as a man of great power. And now that Philip and the apostles come along, he sees his opportunity through Jesus to be considered even greater, to be godlike again, to be even more powerful, to be an influential spiritual leader once more. And therein lies the problem for Simon Jesus is just a means to an end, not an end himself. Jesus is Simon's way of becoming more famous, more known, more respected, to be better off, to be powerful, to be an influencer, to do amazing miracles, to be recognized and famous. Jesus is Simon's way of advancing himself, and that's nothing but counterfeit faith, following Jesus to advance your own selfish gain, believing in Jesus so that he can give you something more than wanting Jesus himself as the free gift. You see that? And Christians always wrestle with this in part. I wrestle with this in part. Remnants of simony, they rest in all of us. I'll tell you, tomorrow morning, Monday morning, I'm going to think back to the sermon today and I'm going to think what I said well, how I made people laugh there, how I made that profound point, how I riveted the congregation you're riveted, aren't you? And you know what I realize? Every single Monday morning, there's a part of me, a remnant of sin and simony in me that loves the praise I get for preaching Jesus more than the Jesus I'm preaching about. That's simony. I love how Jesus made me a preacher more than I love Jesus himself. And that's nothing more then simony in my own heart, following Jesus as a means to an end rather than Jesus as a means himself. This can often be promoted. It's celebrated even in evangelical churches today. Believe in Jesus and you're going to be healthy. Believe in Jesus and you'll be wealthy. Believe in Jesus and you'll be prosperous in all that you do. Declare the name of Jesus. You'll be promoted. You'll be successful. Believe in Jesus. You'll never be anxious again. You'll never be depressed again. Believe in Jesus and you'll be more confident, a greater leader. You're going to be more influential in your workplace than you ever were before. In essence, believe in Jesus and you're going to advance in this world. Believe in Jesus and he has a great plan for your life. Believe in Jesus and you can have a better life here and now. That message will preach in the suburbs. Whew. Follow Jesus, more comfort, no trial, no cross, more self. The only problem is it's counterfeit. 
Jesus as a means to selfish self-promotion. It's simony 2,000 years after Simon. And when Simon approaches Peter, Peter recognizes the same thing. This, is, this isn't real. Verse 20, Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. One translation puts it this way, to hell with you and your silver. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. You know, Jesus has many gifts he wants to give. He has many promises, promises of his forgiveness, promises of his righteousness, assurance of his love and eternal life, joy in his spirit, fruit in his spirit, the promise to change us from the inside out to more reflect Jesus in our lives here and now. He wants to give us himself so we can be more like him. He's not so much interested in giving us himself so we can be more like we already are and advance our own selfish interests. Forgiveness, righteousness, holiness, Christ-likeness, suffering, and eternal life in his kingdom. These are promises that Jesus says all of his followers can receive and rest in if we would only receive him and him alone. But if you want Jesus to simply advance your own selfish gain, your own sinful desires, your own fame and worldly well-being. If your mantra is believe in Jesus and you can have your best life now, then your heart, like Simon's, is not right before God. So Peter reproved Simon. He tells him squarely, verse 23, Simon, I see that you're in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Your heart is wrapped in sin. It's, it's entangled in iniquity. It's still captive to Satan and his kingdom. You haven't changed. You have a counterfeit fifth, faith. It, your heart is not genuine in this matter. You believe in Jesus to advance yourself. And then he tells him, you need to change your heart. Verse 22, repent therefore. Repent. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. I always wonder, I wonder if Peter had Simon in mind when he wrote a letter to Christian leaders later on in his life, men who actually stepped into leadership roles like Simon wanted. And when Peter writes to them, he says, so I exhort the elders, the leaders, right? The shepherds among you, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, but not for shameful gain. There is genuine faith which in sincerity and repentance embraces Jesus for himself. And by that faith, Jesus takes our sin and freely, graciously gives us his forgiveness, righteousness, and holiness as a free gift. He gives us himself so we can be changed more into his likeness. And then there is a counterfeit faith which is like the gall of bitterness. It only wants Jesus to advance our own selfish gains. It wants Christianity without Christ. And at its heart, it is still trapped in the bond of iniquity. 
And this is what is so tragic. If you look at verse 24, after Peter's reproof, after Simon's faith or lack thereof is exposed, after the encouragement, Simon, you can still be forgiven. You can still repent. You can still turn back and be forgiven. Simon still remains unchanged. Simon answered, verse 24, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said will come upon me. As one commentator put it, this is John Stott, he said, Simon's response to Peter was not encouraging. He showed no sign of genuine faith, repentance, or even of contrition instead of praying for forgiveness. As Peter had urged him to do, what really concerned Simon was not that he might receive God's forgiveness, but only that he might escape, escape God's judgment and continue on unscathed, continue on as he was before. In other words, he still sees Jesus as nothing more than a means to an end, nothing more than a way of escaping the consequences of his sin as an end of advancing himself. Hence why we still call this counterfeit faith today simony. There's a woman who stands in stark contrast to Simon. Her name's Johnny Erickson Tata. I, I can't recommend any book that she writes anything, anything more than her, her books. And talk about a person who knows Jesus is far more than a means to an end. Johnny Erickson Tata became a quadriplegic in her late teens. She lost almost all of her opportunities at becoming a professional diver and swimmer in college. And as she puts it, her life after following Jesus has not necessarily advanced herself. In a recent essay, she spoke about the most valuable thing that she has in life. And in that essay, she writes, when pain jerks me awake at night, I first glance up. If the digital display on the ceiling says only the second watch of the night, I push through the pain and I try to breathe my way back to sleep. But if the clock says 4 a.m., I smile. Jesus has awakened me to enjoy communion with him, even though it'll be hours before I sit up in my wheelchair and my husband wakes. Do I need more sleep? Of course. Will my pain subside? Unlikely. But at four in the morning, there's a more necessary thing to do, and it makes me happy to think that long before dawn, I am among the early risers who get to be with Jesus himself. I'm the most blessed quadriplegic in the world. It has nothing to do with my job, a nice house, my relatively good health at the moment, or a car pulling out of a handicapped space just as I pull up to the restaurant. It does not hinge on books I've written, how far I've traveled, or how good my life in this world is. No, I am the most blessed quadriplegic in the world because at four in the morning, just like every other waking hour, I have Christ, and Christ has me. Deer Creek, if you have Jesus, you have more than enough. You have a God who sacrificed himself for you. You have a God who gave you himself so you can be more like him. And he freely offers his grace and forgiveness and presence to you this morning if you would just receive him. Let's pray. We thank you that by grace we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You have chosen us, adopted us, forgiven us. You're sanctifying us, conforming us more and more in your image and likeness. Thank you 
for transferring us out of the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of this world, and bringing us into the kingdom of your marvelous light. Jesus, forgive us. Forgive us for so often thinking that you're just a way to a more comfortable life. Forgive us for seeing you as a means to an end of advancing our own selfish agendas. Forgive us for loving what you can do for us more than loving you. Jesus, by your grace, help us. Help us to repent. Help us to turn away from our own selfish gain and instead turn in obedience to you. Work in us more and more a genuine and sincere faith, a faith that receives you as the greatest blessing we could possibly receive. Jesus is in your name we pray. Amen.